Imagine there's no heaven It's easy if you try No hell below us Above us only sky And all the people living for today. Welcome. My name is Anne Wilson, and it's my pleasure to host the Emerge Australia podcast series, in which we speak to a range of professionals and importantly, those impacted by and associated with MECFS and long COVID. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet and pay our respects to elders past, present, emerging and those in attendance. As we reflect on the magnificent lyrics of John Lennon's Imagine, wouldn't it be wonderful to imagine a world where there is no greed or hunger, where we have a brotherhood of man, maybe a world without discrimination or stigma, a world where the voices of those suffering invisibly are listened to, seen and heard. Imagine all the people. Today to talk to us about his involvement with MECFS and tell us about his professional interest and journey with MECFS is Emeritus Professor Paul Fisher, Joint Head of the Molecular Cell Biology Group at La Trobe University. Paul's research interests include the study of neurodegenerative disease, mitochondrial biology, Parkinson's disease, and the roles of mitochondria in disease. Of particular emphasis for us is Dr. Fisher's dedication and focus in studying mitochondria in plasma and white blood cells from MECFS patients. Paul is Chair of Emerge Australia's Medical and Scientific Advisory Committee, where his leadership helps shape our research priorities. His groundbreaking work is widely published, recognising MECFS as a complex and debilitating disease with a substantial social and economic impact on individuals and their community. Paul is also the head of the Mason Foundation Emerge Australia Biobank for MECFS. Thank you for joining us, Paul. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. Thanks, Anne, for that uh, long introduction. It was very, very pleasant. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's a pleasure. So why don't we start by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself and what led you to study um in the neurodegenerative diseases space and led you to your interest in the mitochondria? Uh, well, it's, it's a long story that actually has many twists and turns. I did my PhD a long time ago now at the ANU and then postdoc in Munich, um, working on uh, uh, a very simple organism, a model organism we call it, and that's because most of the major biomedical science breakthroughs in science are actually made not by studying humans, but by studying simple organisms that you can manipulate. Um, and I came back to La Trobe to Australia in 1985. 
Um, we started, at that time, we were working on how cells respond to signals. And we were making um, mutants in a way that we could then fish out the genes to find what those genes were, to find out what was important for sensing and responding to signals. And just by pure accident, the very first gene that we found that way turned out to be a mitochondrial gene. And that's how I got involved in mitochondrial dysfunction. We had unwittingly created the first mitochondrial disease model. So for those in the audience who don't know, the mitochondria are little tiny compartments in cells descended a long time ago from bacteria that invaded cells. And they make most of the energy, uh, more than 90% of the energy that our cells use. So I went from there and moved on to um, ask why mitochondrial disease was affecting the cells. And I discovered a role for a protein called AMPK. Doesn't matter what it actually stands for or does. Um, but then there was a science show which talked about our role, our work in mitochondrial disease, and a, an ME-CFS patient happened to hear this science show where I was talking about our work on mitochondrial disease and AMPK. And this patient contacted me. That was back in 2009. And as a consequence, she and I began a long correspondence that went over the subsequent six years or so. Um, and, and we started to try to find a way for me to get involved in MECFS research. It was very difficult because nothing was known about the illness in terms of its causes. Um, so you couldn't study it with a, with a model organism because you didn't know what to model. Um, and Susanna's idea actually was that maybe um, AMPK and the mitochondria were involved, but I needed to ac have access to patients. But then in the end, Susanna put me in touch with Dr. Don Lewis and um, a colleague, Dr. Brett Lidbury, um, who were already collaborating on MECFS. And so I contacted them and we started our journey with MECFS at that time. And it sort of developed from there. I had ongoing contact with patients, hearing their stories, um, gradually made me understand the terrible burden that MECFS patients face when uh, particularly those who are at the severe end of the spectrum. And I became more and more committed. I saw Jen Breyer's film, Unrest. My own daughter actually was, um, was uh, diagnosed with MECFS in her late teens as well. So I sort oh. of got slowly sucked into the vortex of understanding and wanting to do something about MECFS. That's amazing. What a journey and what an introduction. Um, that's unbelievable. Um, and then for your daughter to to end up having MECFS as well. Um, yeah, that's um, that's really a great intro. So as a scientist, can you identify some of the challenges that you experience in researching MECFS and what are your observations um, both from a scientific perspective, societal uh, basis of the reason for these challenges? I think as a scientist, the main challenges are that you, you need funds to do research. Um, and 
those funds depend upon what society as a whole and government and philanthropic bodies um, regard as important and that they want to put um, invest funds into. And so that um, ultimately provides the limitation and directs where the nation's research effort goes, the world's research effort goes. What does the community at large think is important? What do politicians think is important? What do philanthropic bodies think is important? And that that's in the end what determines things. And the problem with MECFS historically has been that it's it's been a sort of an invisible illness. Um, as people who suffer from MECFS know, if you go back in history, it's been around for a long time, um, but it was sort of not really regarded as a real illness. It was regarded as a psychosomatic illness for a long time. It was even called hysteria at one point in its history. And as a consequence of that, biomedical scientists and research funds were, ne were never significantly directed towards it. And in Australia, we had, we've had a total of about $4 million um, invested by government into MECFS over the years. Um, since certainly at least since the last two decades. And, and most of that actually, three, three quarters of that came just in the last few years as a result of heavy lobbying by the patient community, including Emerge Australia. And, and I was involved in that a bit myself as well. So I think that's one challenge is the lack of funding. You can't do research without funding. You've got to pay salaries. You've got to pay for chemicals and reagents and equipment. The other thing is lack of access to patients and samples. You need a medico uh, who has who treats MECFS patients, and they've been few and far between as well for the very same reasons that I just talked about. And that makes it hard for researchers like myself to actually get material from patients to work with. Um, so that's why it took me six or seven years to, before I could actually even get involved in, in MECFS research. So I think those are the challenges and they're ultimately driven by that lack of understanding in the community. Yeah, it, it's huge. And, and you've obviously touched on many critical points there, particularly um, obviously the lack of funds, but but also um, the challenges that patients face with regard to the diagnosis of MECFS and the fact that, you know, um, you know, our clinicians uh, don't know as much about MECFS as as they need to, um, and 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 that's a big issue and and obviously something that uh, continues uh, today uh, that we're trying to do something about, but. Um, I guess I'm interested to find out from, you know, the knowledge that you've acquired, um, what do you believe needs to be done to bring about change for people with MECFS? And it's not just MECFS now. We've got long COVID, of course, um, uh, that has emerged in the last couple of years as a major issue. I think the things that need to be done can be sort of broken down into uh, the timeframes over which they could potentially happen. So um, I think the, the most immediate things that need to be done are the things that like what Emerge is doing and other advocacy groups are doing. And that is to change, to change community awareness of the illness, 
change uh, the awareness of the NHMRC funding bodies, the medical profession as a whole, educate the medical profession so that patients can get better support um, and understanding from the, from, from the medical professionals, professionals that they work with. And so those things can happen faster because they don't require long periods of painstaking research and, and they're really important and they can help patients immediately. The second thing is, that, and will help flow from that, is that more research funding needs to be made available so that we can find the biomedical basis for the illness and develop diagnostic tools that will allow us to get rapid diagnosis of, of ME-CFS on a, in a more um, objective way, if you like, that, that um, medicos can can grab hold of it and say, this test says that the reason you're feeling the way you are is because you've got ME-CFS. That diagnosis means that I, I know what path we need to take to treat the illness. So that will take a bit longer than perhaps changing the education of the medical profession in the first instance. The third thing is we need to understand the illness if we want to develop treatments and um, in a rational way. So, in, in fact, there are two ways that you can develop, um, historically, two ways that you can develop drugs for uh, treating illnesses. One is the rational way where you understand the mechanism of the illness, and that requires research and is slow. The second way is to just screen a, a whole heap of drugs and just you know look for potluck, look for something that will actually help. Um, that is also slow, but not as slow as trying to understand a really complicated illness. Um, and, and we're sort of collaborating with colleagues to, to do both of those things. Thank you for that response. I mean, you know, when, when we think about um, other disease states, we, we see that, um, you know, diagnostic tests have been developed to be able to identify uh you know disease earlier how far off do you think we are in terms of having a biomarker or a diagnostic test um that could be used let's say in general practice to identify people or either with MECFS or who might be at increased risk of getting MECFS um in, in relation to people who have ME-CFS, I think we're getting pretty close. We've got, um, we in my lab have discovered thousands of differences between blood-derived cells um, in ME-CFS patients versus healthy controls, and we're now doing the same thing for uh, long COVID. And those, um, a subset of those can be used, in, at least in the small samples that we've looked at so far, can be used to, to tell the difference, discriminate with 100% accuracy between healthy controls and ME-CFS blood samples. The problem is the, the sample size is still very small. We've done that work with, um, you know, scores of patients, but not with hundreds or thousands of patients. And that means that we don't, we can't yet be absolutely certain that those markers are going to work in a much larger population. Um, but we're, we're hopeful. So I think that 
So the first stage will be to verify and validate them in a larger population of samples. The second stage will then be to try to bring those things to market. So we've, we're focusing a lot on something that we think will be readily applicable in the clinic because it's based upon the same sorts of technology that we used for um, the, the PCR tests for COVID. So we think that we will be able to develop a PCR test for ME-CFS using blood samples. Well, that uh, would be amazing, wouldn't it? It would be wonderful. And, and yeah, at that point, we're going to need help from people who understand how to, how to actually get things into the clinic, which we haven't done yeah. before. Which goes back to funding, doesn't it, ultimately? You know, even, you know, in order to be able to get larger samples uh, of, of patients for your research, I mean, all of that is dependent on uh, funds being made available. And, um, you know, that, that seems to be uh, a major challenge, which leads me really to my, my next question, and that is, um, how do you believe that an emphasis on post-acute sequelae of COVID, PASC, um, is impacting uh, research into ME-CFS? And should the focus of research funding be first on ME-CFS rather than long COVID or vice versa? I mean, is there going to be um, an impact of PASC research on ME-CFS, which seems to be the way government is moving? I think there's there's both opportunities and risks here. So the opportunity is that long COVID has made politicians and the community at large much more aware of the post-acute sequelae of viral and other infections, including um, in, including COVID-19 itself, of course. Um, so th that provides an opportunity. The government is now interested in putting money into that and they, um, they've made an announcement of um, $50 million um, funding for research into long COVID. The, 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 and, and that can provide an opportunity for research both on, on that illness and on, and on ME-CFS and other post-viral illnesses. The, the risk is that people will, will see PASC, long COVID, as being something that is unique to COVID and not something that is actually related closely to ME-CFS. And if, that's, if that happens, and there are people who tend to think that way about long COVID, then the funding would all be channeled towards COVID specifically, the thinking would be channeled towards COVID specifically, and that would leave um, ME studies of ME-CFS initiated by other infections sort of out in the cold a little bit. We would still learn about it indirectly, but um, it really needs. We really need to study the relationship between these illnesses, and understand if they are different, how different, and if they are, if they share things, how do they share them? Because the clinical presentations are really similar. Um, in fact, the main difference may be the time required for diagnosis. In MECFS, you have to have had the illness for six months before you can get a successful diagnosis based on the current case definitions, and you have to have excluded all the other possible things. In long COVID, that time period is um, three months, not six months. It could be that we have missed a whole heap of MECFS 
patients over the years because we can't, they're not diagnosed until six months. They actually had the illness in that intervening three to six months period as well. And it could be that the illness presents clinically a little bit differently in that intervening period and that the molecular changes in the cells are also a little different in that period. So it could be that the differences between long COVID and ME-CFS are just because of the time of diagnosis. Could also be, of course, that different viruses lead to ME-CFS through slightly different pathways. Yeah, yeah. So so one of the things that, that Emerge Australia has been um, trying to sing from the rooftops is that while science hasn't yet delivered the answers about the similarities of, between ME-CFS and long COVID, what uh, we do know uh, from uh, an economic perspective is that the impact of both these diseases is the same. And what we're trying to argue is that as a result of this economic impact of both these diseases, which is devastating for people who've got them, um, shouldn't that then be a catalyst for further funds to be um, poured into ME-CFS as well as long COVID? What are your thoughts? Absolutely, it should be, um, particularly given that, you know, half half of the patients who are diagnosed with long COVID, we know, will progress to a, at six months to an illness that is indistinguishable from ME-CFS. They would be diagnosed um, as having ME-CFS were, were the diagnostic procedures carried out. So um, I think it's really clear the two illnesses are related. Um, yeah. And I, and we have done some preliminary work that say that long COVID patients at the molecular level and MECFS samples at the molecular level share um, hundreds, if not thousands, of similarities. They also have differences, which, as I said, could be because of the timing of the of of the diagnosis. If you were prime minister for a day. How would you address these issues? I think um, I, I, I would do, again, two things. One, first thing would be um, something that emerges heavily involved in, and that is trying to get the NHMRC guidelines changed and improve the education of medical professionals because that can have an immediate impact if that's done um, on on the ability of patients to live with this illness. Um, uh, secondly, I, I would change the research funding system in a, in a way that would allow um, better support for illnesses that actually have an enormous burden on the community but attract very little support at the moment. As I said, the funding tends to go where the consciousness of the of the community at large and the politicians um, and, and prof medical professionals direct it to go. And, and that means that often illnesses can be ignored or neglected, and ME-CFS is one of those. I think we need a much more objective way of distributing research funds that relate, medical research funds at least, that relate the, the, the severity of the disease illness 
on both the individuals and the community at large in an objective way that helps direct the research in accordingly. And that would help a lot, I think. And the third thing is, I, I said there were two, there is a third <laughs> that I would like to mention as well. And that is that my history tells me that we, you know, we got in, involved in MECFS research and mitochondrial research partly by accident as a long sort of history of my, um, of my scientific career. And that's, that's actually really common in science. So what that means is that when you're doing research, you don't always know what you're going to find ahead of time. You just discover things. And those things turn out sometimes to be really important. So I, I think that it is also important in, for the long-term strategy, not just for MECFS, but other illnesses, to support curiosity-driven research that is aimed at trying to find out how the world works. Well, that's such a, an interesting statement that you make because one of the um, questions that I ask myself um, is related to the fact that, you know, a lot of traditional research, obviously, apart from needing funding, takes a long time to deliver results. And I wonder about the role of more translational research and, you know, are there areas um, in the MECFS and long COVID space where um, uh, funds for, for shorter pieces of research that deliver outcomes in a shorter period of time could be directed? Yeah, I, I, as I said, I think that we are close to a diagnostic test, for example, and I think all we need is the funds to be able to support that. And we could do that relatively quickly in, in terms of research timescales. So you really need funding across the whole spectrum of, of scientific research from the, from the, the curiosity driven end that I talked about through to the, um, the, under, the basic research to understand the illness through to taking those discoveries and try to translate them into diagnostic tests or into um, treatments. Um, we, we need funding at all of those different stages for things to actually work in the long term. We won't solve things if we try to just do the translational work at the end because we won't have anything to translate. Yeah. But on the other hand, we won't translate it if we only do curiosity-driven research. Um, and some things can be done quickly, like diagnostic tests. Other things will take longer. So to those people listening today who have MECFS, long COVID, have, or have loved ones or are caring for loved ones, how do we bring hope to our listeners um, who are in the midst of trying to cope with the impact of this disease? Um, what would you think, you've already spoken about the fact that we're very close to um, finding a diagnostic test. What other areas are you hopeful that, you know, may be around the corner if we're able to uh, attract greater funding to this area? So I think that the, the, the immediate um, hope is that, um, let me, let me start that again. I, th I think that um, firstly, I would say that the landscape 
in this area has changed dramatically since I got involved in MECFS research in 2016. Not not because so much of what we have done, but because of what is being done on a on a worldwide basis. People are starting to realise this is a biomedical illness, not a not a psych, psychological illness, psychiatric illness. And as a consequence of that, more and more attention is being paid to it for at the biomedical end of things. So that has happened in a fairly short time. That's only six or seven years in that uh, uh, that, that landscape has changed so dramatically. Long COVID is going to accelerate that. Second thing is that um, patients should hope that in the next five years or so, not only will that change accelerate, but also we will end up with tests, diagnostic tests, and, and we will understand the disease much better. And thirdly, if we're lucky, we might stumble onto a treatment as well, depending on the research funding. Um, so I think there is hope. There is hope because the landscape is now changing rapidly. That's that's such a wonderful note to finish on, Paul. Uh, Professor Paul Fisher, uh, Head of Emerge Australia's Medical and Scientific Advisory Committee, thank you for your time and your willingness to share your personal views and experiences with us today. We so appreciate having you as our podcast guest. Today's podcast is part of a series, uh, Emerge Australia is recording with patients and people of influence to ensure that the voices of those with MECFS are heard. This is a platform we, where we can together explore the pressing issues faced by 250,000 people with MECFS and at least 400,000 more with long COVID. Tune in again for our next interview and don't forget for more information and to subscribe to the Emerge Australia newsletter Visit our website on www.emerge.org.au. Thank you again, Paul, and bye for now. Thank you so much. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. And I hope someday you'll join.